Romans chapter 10, verses 10 through 15. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scriptures say, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Who then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Well, this morning, I hope that you'll keep your Bibles open to Romans chapter 9. Actually, this morning, we're going to look at Romans 9 through 11 as we continue this little mini-series in the midst of our larger series through the book of Romans. We continue this mini-series. The the, the title of the, the series in Romans is The Gospel in Romans, The Power of God for Salvation. And I just don't want us to forget that what we're talking about, when we talk about the gospel, we're talking about the power of God. There is no greater power. We, we can't imagine, we can't comprehend, we can't, there, there's, there is no higher thing to talk about than the leveraging of the authority and might, the strength of God for something. And we're talking about the leveraging of the power of God for salvation. This is what we're talking about when we're working our way through This uh, letter of Romans, our prayer for this series is that over the coming years, the Lord would build for us a foundation for our faith in the power of God for salvation. And so as we're building this, this foundation on the power of God, we're building on the strongest imaginable foundation for our faith. Like I said, we're in this four part mini series to begin our time in Romans over the coming years. And a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Romans 1 through 4, considering grace alone through faith alone. Last week, we looked at Romans 5 through 8, as we saw this movement from death to life. And we saw that it's more than that. It's not just a movement from death to life. It's actually a movement from death to a life of rejoicing, as we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And today, we look at Romans 9 through 11, where we consider God's one message of salvation. In Romans 1 through 8, the gospel's been preached. It's there. We should have heard it. We should go back again and read it that we might build on that foundation of the gospel of our God, which is the power of God for salvation. We have this righteousness from God that can be obtained by wicked rebels by grace alone, through faith alone. This is the gospel that's been preached. The the effect of this alien righteousness invading the human soul of wicked rebels is nothing more than to bring dead things and make them alive things. And as it says, more than that, rejoicing in hope. Paul's purpose in those first chapters was to make this gospel clear and known to proclaim the gospel. What now follows in chapters 1, 9 through 11 is a tracing of how this good news has been proclaimed throughout redemption history. This one good news is now examined in how it's been proclaimed during the course of the whole of redemption history, the, the, the record that we have in the scriptures. Specifically, this is the story of gospel proclamation in the midst of two ethnic people. The promise first made known through Abraham. The the children of promise that follow after him. And then how this proclamation now comes to the Gentiles. How did it come? Well, it turns out it came because as a people together, the Jews rejected their Messiah, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. But the news of the work of the Messiah, that is his righteous life, his sacrificial death, his victorious resurrection, his glorious reign has now come. That news has now come to the Gentiles. And Paul is going to now address two things. 
These were things that the, the church in Rome was very well aware. It's just happened. In recent years and decades, this news has come, and it's made its way to Rome. And there is a church that is made up of Jews and Gentiles together. And he has to address this, the reality of the proclamation of God as it's made its way through these two ethnic groups. And so he's going to address two things in chapters 9 and 10. He's going to answer the question of any Jewish believer. And make no mistake, the Jewish believers would ask this question, are my fellow Jews, my kinsmen according to the flesh, done for? Is it all over? Is there any hope that remains for them or are they cut off forever? And then he addresses a second question. He's gonna head off the arrogance of the Gentile believer in the church in Rome. You might be tempted to think you're cool. The gospel's come to you when all those Jews rebelled and their trespass led to your great salvation. But remember that the people through whom the gospel first came, when they failed to believe, they were cut off. You too, Gentile believer, Paul will say, rather than turning inward to some self-righteousness, ought to join with the humility of your Jewish family, and particularly in the longing that not only your family and ethnic Gentiles, but that the ethnic Jews would themselves again receive and believe this proclamation of the gospel, that you ought to long for the salvation of Israel by means of the same gospel that's been proclaimed among you, again, where Romans 1 through 8 makes the gospel clearly known, Romans 9 through 11 now traces the movement and proclamation of that gospel among these two ethnic peoples, the Jews and the Gentiles. This is where we are. This is where we begin. That's why I hope your Bibles are open to Romans chapter 9 as we begin to consider this together. Let's pray. These are precious things, God, we confess. These are things that are higher than us, and yet they've been revealed to us. These are things we uh, are inscrutable. We, we do not claim to understand, and yet you've told them to us for our understanding. And so if we would come to believe, if we would come to know, if we would come to understand, if we would come to a, a deeper, more mature, more grounded, more built-up faith, it would be because you have spoken, and your mercy has given us the grace to believe and if we would walk in it, this is a miracle. And that's exactly what we ask for today. Lord, ground us, create in us a longing that is in the Apostle Paul being proclaimed to us, inspired by your Spirit. And Lord, guard us against pride and keep us in humility, keep us under your word. For under you is a good place to be. You are the God of mercy after all. Lord, we pray that you would work this in the midst of your church this morning in the name of Jesus. Amen. We are going to fly through together 10 points, just a mere 10 points this morning. So follow along with me. We're going to move. We've got a lot of ground to cover. Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. Here we see Paul's concern for his kinsmen according to the flesh. If you get to verse two, he says that, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Let's remember that Paul was a fierce defender of the Jewish faith. Um, fierce, like put people to death level fierce. On a journey to do it some more level fierce defender. What Paul did not know at the time of his defense of the Jewish faith against the invasive force of a Messiah named, the, named Jesus. What Paul did not know at the time was that he was actually rejecting the hope of the Jewish faith. Jesus, the Christ, of whom he was rebelling, he was kicking at the goads, he was, he was rejecting and, and, and trying to drag off into further rejection his family, his ethnic family. So now... Here, having come to see the Christ and come to see him as the Messiah, he grieves over his family. His family according to the flesh who continue in the error in which he himself once stood. They are Israelites, he says in verse four. 
And to them belongs the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the law, the worship, the promises, the patriarch, and the Christ. Make no mistake, the, the Christ, who, who does the Christ belong to? His brothers, to Israel. That's who he belongs to. That's to whom he came and to whom he came. Paul's saying, yeah, I long for that. My heart is broken over this thing. Man, a heart is broken is not enough. Great sorrow, unceasing anguish. The impression that we get as we look at that text is that the list could go on and on and on. It could. It could go on like a whole Old Testament level on and on, the gifts that have been given, but there's an interruption. Look at verse six with me as we go on to the next section. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Paul's concern is not only for his, his family according to the flesh, his concern is also and preeminently so, increasingly so, and ought to be increasingly so among us, for God's word. Is that what we're jealous for? For God's word to be shown to be true. He asks, how could God's word work in the giving of these many gifts to Israel, and yet still so many have failed to believe? They've been given all of these gifts according to God's word, his design, his promise, and yet so many have failed to believe. He himself, by a miracle of grace, Jesus himself preaching the gospel to Paul. He was rescued. He says, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all Israel in the flesh are Israel in the spirit. You might say, using this, this idea of types and antitypes, that you have a people who are Israel in the flesh are the type. But what they stand for are actually the real Israel who are the anti-type. There are those who are Israel according to the flesh that are not Israel by faith. They remain in their unrighteousness and in their sin, but those who are brought in and reconciled to their God are those who would receive grace through faith. This is what he's been preaching for eight chapters now. There's not two gospels in Romans. There is one gospel that is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. And to demonstrate this, Paul gives two examples in biblical history. And this is why we're doing this overview, friends. This is why, I mean, there's so much. We're, we're skipping so much, and we'll come back to it together. But we need to see, get an overview, get a feel for the argument that Paul is making. Here he gives two examples. In verse 7, he gives Isaac as an example of one who is uniquely chosen as a child of Abraham, though he's not the only child of Abraham. Some of you know that, some of you don't. Some of you, that's new information, and that's okay. We'll learn biblical history together. God gives a promise to a man named Abraham, and he would become the father of the Israelite people. And that promise that was given to Abraham would be fulfilled through the offspring of Abraham, and Abraham believes God, and it's counted to him as righteousness. We've seen this recently, and yet he wavers. This man who believes God, and it's counted to him as righteousness, is not himself righteous. Any counting of righteousness is, is an alien righteousness that comes by grace alone through faith alone. He wavers, and by his own will and plan, he produces a child through his maidservant, Hagar. And as that child is born, it is not through that child, Ishmael, that the promise would come. And yet he's the firstborn son of Abraham. Isn't that the one to whom the promise would be accounted? Isn't he the heir? But no, it would be through Sarah, through the, her son Isaac, the secondborn of Abraham, that the promise would be counted. So he's saying there are some who are Israel who are not Israel. Take Ishmael, for example, or more importantly, there are some who are Israel who are only Israel because the Lord said it would be that way. Because this is the Lord's design and will. That's Isaac. I chose Isaac, not Ishmael. So the promise continues, not through the will of the flesh, but God fulfills his word of promise according to his own will and plan. That's the first example that he gives. Then Paul gives a second example in verse 10. 
He looks to Jacob and Esau. There were twins, these Jacob and Esau. They were twins together. And Esau was born first, so he's the firstborn. So you have Abraham and the promise coming to the secondborn to Isaac, and then Isaac having Jacob and Esau, and yet Jacob being the secondborn is the one to whom the blessing comes. How is that possible? You can't do that according to the flesh. There's a firstborn and a secondborn, and the firstborn gets the inheritance and, and should receive the promise, but no. But Paul's saying the word of God works not according to the will of the flesh, but according to God's own purpose, his own will, by his own election. Didn't make that word up. It is in here in verses 10, 11, 12. It's running throughout this passage. The word election. We'll look much more closely at this word together when we preach through this passage in more detail. But let's, for now, recognize that the word election means selection. It could be the, the, the Greek word that stands there could be translated selection or choice or to pick out or election, to elect something. That, I elect that one to be the one that I'm going to take home and put in my pocket, pay for, and walk out of the store with. I could elect something. Etymologically, so what the word means, like just, just in, its, in, in its word, in its history, it comes from the word lego, which means speak, and ek, which means out. So ek lego, all right? So to, to elect something is to speak out something. So election or selection or choosing or picking out is God speaking out his will. Now let's go back to the power of God. If God speaks out his will, what's gonna happen? I mean, imagine God speaking out his will Hmm, let there be light. And there was light. That's what you get when the power of God is leveraged by his word. And that's Paul's concern here, isn't it? His Paul concern here, what should we do with God's word? Has God's word failed? He says, no, he speaks out and it is. It was Isaac. It, it was Isaac and it's the people of his choosing, not according to the flesh, but according to his speaking out. Again, Paul is concerned for the trustworthiness of God's will, and he's demonstrated by example that God's speaking into history what would not be natural according to the will of man, whether it be Abraham or whether it be Isaac and uh, whether it be Jacob or Esau, not according to what is the will of man, but according to God's own plan to secure and work out his redemption. It's God's redemption. We continue, look at verse 14. What shall we say then? So what are we supposed to get from what I've just shared? Is there injustice on God's part? <laughs> By no means. He couldn't say it stronger. And here we see Paul's concern for God's justice. He says, yes, God's word, what he speaks will be. That is his right to elect. His right to speak out his will and have it done. But is God unjust in what he speaks? Again, he gives two examples. This time, two sides of the working out of God's will. The first is in verse 15, and we're gonna read it. For, God, for he says to Moses, God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Let's just stop and say, you're having compassion? The God of the universe who makes all things has mercy at all? That's amazing already. That's transformative. That tells us something about the character and nature of our God who speaks. Mercy is not a human condition. Do you see this? Mercy is not endemic to man. It's not something that is owed us for the wages of sin is death, death. But the gift of God, not a wage. We have something that is coming and then something that comes. And that's an invasive force to that which is natural to man. Mercy is for God alone to decide, not human will or exertion, Paul says. And then he gives the, the sort of the corresponding example in verse 17 of hardening. On the other hand, you have Pharaoh, where mercy is an invasive force 
an acting from without, a, an outspeaking by a powerful will upon man to grant mercy, transformation, righteousness, and salvation. You have a, a Pharaoh where mankind continues on in what it is. Just like Adam who shakes his fist in the air and says, on my own I can live as a summary of really what sin is. Mercy is an interruption of man's willful rebellion. It's an invasion of, upon man's will to say no. On, and the Lord comes to the one who's, who's in his rebellion and sin and says, no, on your own you won't live. On your own you'll die. But I have spoken out. I've elected to work mercy so that your rebellion will cease and you will enter my rest. But then he, the hardening of Pharaoh, in his willful rebellion, rage, the Lord withholds his mercy and grace. The Lord works so that the rebellion and the wickedness of Pharaoh, in which he already walks, hardens in its condition. What is a hardening but a becoming of what you are? And the Pharaoh is hardened in his condition. It's not as though Pharaoh really wants to turn from his rebellion. On the inside, like if you look really, really deep, like Disney deep, you know, like what's really on the inside, this light that just sort of wants to burn, wants to shine from deep within us. But you have all these outside forces that are sort of holding back our true selves on the inside. Friends, that's the way that we think. That's the way that we've been trained to think, and you think it like that, and I think like that. But that's not true. Pharaoh isn't a good guy on the inside with this golden light shining inside of himself, and God is working to build a calloused heart around what's good on the inside. God is not cruel in his hand of election, holding Pharaoh back, hardening his heart against Pharaoh's will. No, the hardening is the way of the flesh. And mercy is an invasive force. You see, if you want to know what I'm like on the inside, just watch me for five minutes. That's what I'm like on the inside. And what I need is a transformation on the inside that works its way out to transform my flesh. So God is not only shown to be just, oh, he's more than just, he's actually merciful. So, in verse 19, he asks, why does he still find fault if there is this mercy and this hardening? And, and he answers in verse 29, who are you, O man? Who are you, O man? We as creatures and rebellious creatures at that don't understand our own hearts, and much more, we don't know the mind of God. We don't know what we are on the inside. We don't know what's going on, the wickedness and the, and, the, and the conflicting desires that go on on the inside, but God sees us and he knows us. And what he knows is we need mercy. And so we have the mind of God that speaks. And when he speaks to those of whom he is elected, he speaks a word of mercy and mercy is received and the life is changed. The purpose of God is mercy. Now, what Paul is doing in chapter nine is he's building towards something. He's first defending the purpose of God in making salvation known to Israel through promise. Who has he talked about so far, right? Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's talking about a calling of a people. Salvation does not come through the Gentile, but through a promise that's passed on, not by the will of the flesh, but by the will of God to work out salvation Redemption in history and God is just for salvation is mercy upon whom the Lord wills to have mercy. And at the same time as he's doing, building this argument, he's building toward the reality that now the word of God, this gospel has come to the Gentiles. Not according to the flesh, but according to the speaking out of the will of God. Let's remember the context into which Paul is speaking. Jesus came to Israel and yet was rejected by those to whom he came and was 
crucified. This is recent history for those reading, receiving this letter. Jesus rose from the dead, securing not only forgiveness of sin by his death, but also life by his resurrection. Paul's been preaching this. And this is for all who believe, but still so many in Israel reject him. And on Pentecost, many of both Jews and Gentiles who are proselytes there in Jerusalem, gather in Jerusalem from many nations and they hear the gospel and 3,000 on that day hear and believe and they return to their nations from which they came with the word of the gospel about Jesus and that gospel spreads among those nations. Not just among Israel, but among the nations. So where most of Israel hardens in their unbelief, in their rejection of the Christ, mercy begins to spread to the nations by the witness of a few from among Israel who carry the good news. Verse 15. Church, and how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. I want to take us back to what I just said because I interrupted us with a bad verse, all right? What happened at Pentecost? Jews and Gentile proselytes bring the good news to the nations. What are those feet called? Beautiful. What God sees is the invasive force of mercy being rejected in Jerusalem And yet going out from that place, that word of mercy, working its way among the nations. And he calls it beautiful. It's beautiful feet that bring about that good news. Here's the summary at the end of chapter 9. The summary moving on into chapter 10 is Paul essentially offers up in verse what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have, obtained, have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. And he's hearkening back to the gospel that he's preached in chapters one through eight. Yes, the Gentiles have received it. And they've received it the same way Abraham did, by faith. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. What's Paul's conclusions? What's what's he saying? Where the gospel has spread, the Gentiles have obtained righteousness by faith. And where Israel, by clinging to the law, the, the work of their own flesh rather than the mercy of God, has failed to obtain the mercy of God. Verse three For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. And what we have unpacked then in verses five and following of chapter 10 is a righteousness based on faith. In verses five through seven, have some kind of confusing words. I'll just summarize it like this. It says in verse six, the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that's to bring Christ down, who will descend into the abyss, that's to bring Christ up from the dead, but what does it say? The word is near you. What's going on there? Let me say simply, these images are the effort of a man who is striving in his flesh for righteousness. He's reaching up to heaven. Perhaps I can reach up and obtain righteousness by some performance on my own. Perhaps I can, by some penance of my own, descend And in the process, what's he doing? He's rejecting the reality of the gospel, that Jesus is the one who came down from heaven, that Jesus is the one who has triumphed over death, that righteousness is the result of God's work, not ours. That is the theme that works its way through the whole of Romans, but particularly 9 through 11. A righteousness that is by faith in 8 and 9, expressed by confession and belief. Verse nine, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you notice, where did you go? Did you go up? Did you go down? Did you to rise to heaven? Did you descend to the abyss? No, you stayed right where you were and you received the Christ who came down and the Christ who rose up. 
and you receive him with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Verse 10, for with a heart one believes and is justified and with a mouth one confesses and is saved. What remains for us? Not to reach to the heights, not to go down to the depths, but to sit down in humility underneath of the gospel that has been preached and receive it with faith. This is the call to us this morning. It's already a clear application for all who are gathered this morning. The confession of faith. Is this you? Is this you this morning? Do you sit down underneath the work of Christ's righteousness, the outspeaking of God's mercy for you so that you might be saved? What we have in the remainder of chapter 10 very quickly is faith encountering Jesus in gospel proclamation. So much of these chapters are about the proclamation of God's will for mercy. God has bent his infinite power for mercy, salvation. In verses 14 and 15, he again asks these questions that are so helpful. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And then this series of questions leading to the beautiful feet that are sent If, as we saw in the previous section, the believer takes hold of salvation by confession of faith, how is he to believe if the news of salvation or mercy never comes to his soul? Paul holds up the importance and the beauty of gospel proclamation. News of salvation has come to the Gentiles by that proclamation of the gospel. Do they have any impulse? Do they have any joy in that? so that they themselves might become what? Gospel proclaimers, beautiful feet, bringing news even to the ends of the earth. But there remains a question that's quite natural to ask if we turn to Romans chapter 11. And Paul's beginning to turn a bit of a corner. He's been speaking to the Jews thus far and answering this question, and he's gonna answer it one more time. In verses one through 10, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. Paul can't answer fast enough. It's almost like he interrupts his question with the answer. Has God rejected his people? No. No. He says, in continuing verse one, for I myself am an Israelite, preaching the gospel to you in this letter so clearly. A descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Paul, an Israelite who is saved, an Israelite who not only was saved, he is an Israelite who is a radical rejecter of the Christ. And you think the Jews have so radically rejected the Christ that they cannot be saved? That they have been cut off forever? Paul and Jesus comes. And mercy is proclaimed. And the gift of faith is given. And he believes and becomes beautiful feet. Even more, he's an Israelite that not only believed, he's an Israelite who became a gospel proclaimer. Has God rejected Israel? No. No, in fact, he's not only rejected Israel, but they continue in the commission that they've been given to bring this light to the nations. It's through faith of these few Jewish believers that the gospel has come to the world and we ought to rejoice. He gives an illustration. I want you to look at verse three. Listen to what's actually happening here. We have Elijah in the scriptures and he appeals to God against Israel. He says, Lord, they have, Elijah's a prophet, right? He said, they have killed your prophets. That puts him in the category of people dying all over the place, all right? Lord, they've killed your prophets and they've demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. What's he saying by that? This is not an abstract theological concept being unpacked for us this morning. If you say a sentence like that to God, God, everybody else who's like me in this town, they've killed all of them. And now they're coming for me. What's his fear? Well, he doesn't want to die. But that's not his main fear. The very proclaimers of your promise are going to die out when I die. And it's over. Israel is cut off forever from the mercy of God. 
And what is God's reply? I have kept for my... He's not, Elijah, don't worry about it. You'll be all right. In fact, you're getting to ascend to heaven. You won't even die. Don't worry about it. I got this. That's not even Elijah's main concern. And certainly not God's main concern. I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. I have a people who are mine. Because my mercy stands. My promise endures. And when I, when I promise to save, what's going to happen? When I speak out mercy, mercy will be received. This is God's purpose. And it remains. Apostasy is radical. The unbelief is prevailing in the day. No, God has kept some. This is his election, his selection of a few to show mercy. And the elect have obtained righteousness by faith, verse seven. So many, just as in the day of Elijah, have been hardened in their unbelief, but mercy is an invasive force that invades the hardening of hearts, that invades rebellion and turns it on its head and brings about the power of God for salvation. He gives negative examples. He talks about the spirit of stupor, rebellion and unbelief, the fact that the prophet is still speaking these words about a spiritual spirit of stupor in verse eight is evidence that mercy still is being proclaimed. Yes, there is a snare and a trap in verse nine, but who's saying it? David. There's a darkness and a crookedness, but the fact that David writes Psalm 69 is evidence that God's work of mercy remains. Back to the original question. Has God rejected Israel? No. No, he has not. He's not rejected them because, not because they're great, not because they're the great nation of Israel, the great people of God, or some value that ought not be left behind. There's no diamond in the rough in Israel. At every moment in redemption history, even when rebellion is at its height, God's mercy keeps a people for himself. It's by his grace and through these beautiful feet that the word of the gospel is preserved even to our hearing this morning. And I feel a hymn rising up, you know? Like there's worship that should be happening in the midst of the congregation. We have news today coming into my ears because of God's mercy preserved among a people who are faithful to proclaim. And then he turns. And this is where we go as our, our final look in Romans 11 and 11 through 24. Through another's trespass, salvation has come to a whole new people. Here we have another question in verse 11. So I ask, did they, that is the Israelites, stumble in order that they might fall? A stumble is a moment of failure. A fall is something from which one may never recover. It's much the same question as, as verse one, where in chapters nine and 10, Paul is mostly addressing the Jewish believers in the church in Rome. By the time we get to verse 13, Paul directly, explicitly addresses the Gentiles. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Are you, are you listen? It is much then as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I may magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some. He has been offering clarity and comfort to the Jews, even as he defends the word and justice and mercy of our God. He now offers a warning and a compelling vision for the Gentiles, a warning against pride and a vision for gospel proclamation. There's a negative warning and there's a casting of a new sight. In verse 11, Israel's rejection of their Messiah has caused the gospel to be proclaimed among the Gentiles with the result that Israel themselves might become jealous of what is being received. Imagine, I mean, imagine how this might work. Imagine a synagogue in Rome that has not received the Christ, but perhaps has even kicked out any Jewish or Gentile believers that might be in their midst. Imagine this synagogue in Rome hearing the gospel preached in a nearby square or a nearby upper room. You hear some Gentile Christian talking about a man named Jesus, who is Messiah, anointed king, bringing long promises of salvation originally given to the patriarchs 
of Israel and now proclaimed among the nations. And you are a Jew. What's your response? Hey, you can't talk about Messiah. The Messiah is our Messiah. Even if I don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, you don't get to talk about Messiah. And don't you talk about the patriarchs. They're ours, given to us. Don't you talk about promises from Yahweh. He's ours. But you see, the Gentiles believe. And then you see the Gentiles grow, pouring over the scriptures given to their and to the ancestors, your ancestors. And, and you're seeing them experiencing life and joy and the mercy of God that's being made known among them. And jealousy, that jealousy is Paul's aim. A church that grows up, that the Jews who see and hear say, that's Messiah. He longs that his kinsmen, according to the flesh, would become jealous of the joy now being received by the Gentiles. By the time we get to verse 12, if by rejection of the Messiah, news of righteousness by faith has been proclaimed among the Gentiles, how greatly will the gospel be proclaimed when the world hears of Messiah's power to save Israel too? How amazing will it be when that synagogue sitting in there, hearing the Gentiles preach in the streets, turns and says, that's our Messiah. And how much rejoicing will there be in the whole of the city on that day? How great are his mercies and how deep are the riches of his grace. The Lord saves even those who reject him. The gospel is of mercy through and through and at every moment and in every case. It's never been God's final purpose to include one ethnic people and to exclude another. You can't read the scriptures and find that there. It's always been his purpose, whether in a period of rejection or a period of repentance, that the gospel would be preached first to the Jew, yes, and also to the Gentile. Even to the ends of the earth has been the aim. That one people from every tribe tongue and nation would gather at the throne in redeemed worship and glory forever. I mean, look at the history. Israel is chosen by God to be a conduit of promise. Abraham is called out from among the nations. He wasn't a special man. He wasn't a, some great godly man. He wasn't one who, who sought the Lord in spirit and in truth. He was one from among the nations. And that world is left in their sin. Many among Israel throughout history believe God and it's counted to them as righteousness. Just as the word comes to Abraham and he believes, the word comes along the way to many throughout history. But in this moment into which Paul is writing, much as in the moment in which Elijah lived, almost all have rejected God's word. And at the same moment, in that same moment when there's so much rejection, the Gentiles to whom the word of promise has now come are beginning to believe. What Paul longs for is a moment in the future in which many among Israel would hear and believe that the effect of the spread of the gospel would ultimately lead to that very gospel coming home to a people by whom it was first received and by whom it was first proclaimed. While in Christ, there is one righteousness obtained by grace through faith. There remains an ethnic distinction. There is such a thing as Jew according to the flesh and Gentile according to the flesh. And what Paul's saying is that, that, that reality in the flesh has a powerful effect for the spread of the proclamation of Christ, which is of utmost importance. So much so that we're often told that there's, there is no, what, what did we say this morning, right? No, no Scythian, no barbarian, no slave or free, we can say that. But it, when it comes to the, the actual proclamation of the gospel, these are powerful things to consider. And that's what Paul's doing. It's important for us today. While the gospel makes one redeemed people, period, it does not erase ethnic distinction for the sake of gospel proclamation, the one gospel proclamation. So ethnic distinction is made a servant of proclamation, of the one Christ. I'm going to say it again. Any ethnic distinction, any family group, any nation or tie or identification of a people is made a servant of the one gospel proclamation. 
we need to look at just one word very quickly, and there's so many words that we're passing over, but in verse 12, it says, now, if their trespasses means riches for the world, and their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Many of you will see that there's a note, a little, in my Bible, it says a little number two, and it says maybe that means their fullness. There's a number of ways that this idea can be interpreted or applied and translated, but the idea of inclusion of what is is an unpacking of the whole of chapter 11. Full or inclusion or fullness. We'll look at it in much more detail in the future, but for now, let us note that it is this idea of full inclusion is a complement to the word trespass. However full was their trespass and rejection, so also will be their inclusion. And Paul says, I was redeemed. However full was their trespass, so too is their inclusion. In neither case is is it a technical numerical completeness. Fullness doesn't necessarily mean every single one, but as a body, it is accurate to say for the purpose of the evidence for gospel proclamation that both trespass and and in inclusion, it is full and thorough. Paul is suggesting that this end of that the end to which he aims of full inclusion is a valuable and fruitful labor. He's holding up the beauty of his people receiving mercy with faith as a compelling vision for the Gentiles in Rome. In verses 17 through 24, Paul gives a number of illustrations, particularly from horticulture, this idea of branches being broken off of a vine while other wild branches are being grafted in. It's a clear and consistent picture of God's work of mercy. God is the one that is grafting. God is the one that is pruning. God is the one that is cutting off and grafting in. He wills to harden the unbelieving and break off their branch. And who are gonna argue with him? If he wills to soften a branch that's separated from the vine, who will argue with him? God alone is the one who speaks out his purpose of both mercy and hardening. What's being presented in verses 25 through 32 as we come to the end of the chapter is a mystery, and it is. We have a clear warning, don't be wise in your own sight. And again, we have the statement of this inclusion of Israel that saved complementary to the rejection of Israel and their trespass. There's a season of disobedience in which the hearts of the people harden, and there is a season of mercy in which God interrupts the trajectory of rebellious history with news of his grace. And this is called the mystery of grace. And we've seen it more fully revealed with the coming of Christ and his gospel. It's interesting to me that so very often, Paul, in all of his letters, he talks about a mystery. And inevitably, when he's talking about the mystery, he's talking about something that he just described. He's told you about it. You know what the mystery is, but it's so full. It's so deep. It's so rich. His mercy is a mercy that we can know and ought to know and ought to believe. And you'll never come to the end of it. And that's why I love love it when the Apostle Paul does this. And, And you can hear the inspiration of the Spirit in this. He's going along, he's rolling, he's working where God has consigned all the disobedience that he may have mercy on all and he just interrupts it. He's like, enough, you heard me. I gotta say something, I gotta say, oh. And I'll tell you, I don't think that there is a better word for worship than oh. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How? unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable are his ways. And, and a verse comes to his mind and he pulls it up and he says, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. What did we, what did we say a couple weeks ago? What did we say? last week. We have not only death in our sin, we have not only life in Christ, we've been purchased to rejoicing. That's where Paul goes. He's not teaching a lesson, he's worshiping. 
come along. I pray that this morning the good news of Romans 8, 1 through 8, have been clearly heard, that it's crept its way into this message and has been received by your souls and that you would receive it with faith and be saved. In Romans 9, we heard of a God who is sovereign in his reign over all of salvation, from him, through him, to him, all things, all of mercy, all of hardening, all of redemption belongs to him. In Romans 10, you heard that while much of Israel has failed to receive the promise, so many have rejected the Messiah, yet there is hope that God will again make his mercy known to Israel. Is that a compelling hope? Verse, and in chapter 11, you've heard the warning to the Gentiles. It's mercy that God has made his grace known among the Gentiles. And where the gospel brings us to the rejoicing, the hardening of Israel ought to bring us to tears. God is worthy of a worship among a people. Do we long that mercy would be known? The church in Rome includes believers from Israel. And all the church ought to join in a longing for the gospel to be proclaimed in Israel so that mercy on all would cause all of the church to break into doxology. That's where we're going. We're going to doxology, church. And oh, depth, oh, unsearchable, oh, inscrutable, oh, may the glorious gospel bring us to tears for all who have not heard, all who have not believed and long, may they become jealous for the joy that we walk in. And may we go that that joy would be known for from him and through him and to him are all things. To God be glory forever. And that's the final word, amen. Lord, we pray right now, so much has been upheld to us here. We believe it. We nod assent. We take notes and we say, yes, I want that to be remembered We'll read it again and we'll come to greater understanding and belief. But we have so little functional belief. We have what we want to do and then we have what we do. Lord, create a longing in us, create a warning in us that we would send and that we would go and that we would preach and that faith would be received and it would be confessed, that we would work our ways back up the chain of gospel proclamation. Lord, you are worthy. Your mercy has come to us and it's changed everything. Save, Lord, we pray. Lord, we ask that you teach us, bring us to a mature understanding. We need help. We thank you for the mystery revealed and the mystery that is inscrutable. Cause us to search and magnify you as we see you more and more. Thank you, Lord. We praise you. And this is an evidence of grace. We praise you this morning in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.